Hello, 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 and welcome to the 26th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, in Singapore's hyper-competitive education system, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to having had extra tuition during our schooling days. Be it in math, science, or even in your mother tongue, tuition served as a way for students to have an academic edge over their peers, particularly if they were struggling in some subject. What would have been obvious to many as well is the demand for such tuition services. Since academic ability plays a key role in determining your access to further educational institutions, it should be of no surprise that many parents are willing to fork out hefty amounts, often amounting to hundreds or even thousands of dollars each month. Such was the demand for tuition that it is not uncommon to hear of private tutors taking home five-figure monthly salaries. In fact, I even recall that during my JC years, my tutor had earned and saved up enough to move from her parents' HDB apartment to her own condominium. Not too bad for someone who spends most of their time teaching, but in light of the economic demand and my own struggling grades, fully understandable. Unfortunately, however, it should also be noted that not everyone has the luxury or the ability to afford tuition. And for the children of the less well-off, it's easy to imagine how this gap in educational resources can have detrimental effects. If you don't do well in PSLE, you don't get into a good school. And if you don't get into a good school, you may get stuck in a bad environment with other troubled teens. And the rest of the story rarely gets much happier from there. With that being said, it is with great pleasure that I'm able to have my guest for today, Mint Lim. You see, Mint is extremely familiar with the issues that I've just raised, having been a private tutor who has seen and taught many of these underprivileged children, and who is currently running a social enterprise to help them academically. From her story, I hope to share a glimpse into her background and her motivations, as well as an insight into her social entrepreneurship business and the different challenges she faces. Hopefully, this will help to show that not all capitalists are ruthless profit-seeking villains, and that social good and healthy bottom line don't have to be mutually exclusive. Without further ado, let's move on to the interview. Min Lim, welcome to the show. Hello. Alright, so um, let's begin with your background. I found it interesting that you actually had a learning disability growing up. So could you briefly describe what it was and what was your experience with this? Um, it was more of like um, issues with reading and looking at numbers. Mm-hmm. So information or rather letters or numbers would be jumbled up occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in from my point of view, it was always um, right. But from somebody else's point of view, I realized that they didn't they didn't look at it the same way. Mm-hmm. So that was the first <laughs> point, or rather, that was my first um, experience with uh, my so-called disability mm. but I never really took it very seriously because my, my parents never quite labeled me mm. uh, or I never I, the only thing um, I remember my father um, reminding me about um, it's okay if people take a year to get something done mm. but you take three years because you still get there eventually mm. so, so I think that was very healthy form of advice for me at that point in time mm. yeah yeah so um yeah, so so help help me understand this a little bit more. Uh, you know, you mentioned just now that you're a little tr- you're a little trouble sort of understanding numbers and information, yeah. and then you saw things differently from from how other people saw it, right? Yeah. So was this more like you know um, you know people people saw one plus one equals two, and then you saw it differently, or could you give us an example of that? Uh, yeah. My earliest memory of this issue was with my P's, my Q's, and my B's and my D's. Mm. So my mother would write P like 
five times, say, mm. on a sheet of paper. Yeah. And she would ask me to repeat it. And I, I guess I must have written Q. Yeah. Um, but I, I always thought that, I, and from, my, from my perspective, it was the same. Mm. It looked exactly the same. Mm. And my mother would often get very frustrated. Mm. She, would, she, would, she would never seem to understand, like, how can you actually look at it? How, how, how is it actually the same? Yeah. Uh, and I re- remember singing, like, um, songs to my grandmother. Yeah. Like, you know, there's this Chinese song, Shi Shang Si Mama Hao. Uh. I would always jumble up the verses. I, and I would remember my grandmother going, no, no, that's not correct. She would sing it again. Yeah. But it would sound the same to me. Mm. Yeah, so I think it was a, it was a disconnect, I think. Um, like, yeah. you know, it, it was, it was always me, whatever I said and whatever I saw versus what other people were saying and what other people were seeing. Huh. Yeah. That's quite interesting because it, it's not just, it's not just the way you were looking at different letters. You, you couldn't distinguish between a P and a Q. Yeah. Was that right? It was also, was it also phonetically? You, because, because you were, you were talking about how, uh, that you were singing and then you couldn't differentiate as well. No, I think it's more like the, the, the order of things. Mm. I would jumble out the order of things. Mm. So, like, even for sentences, I might read, like, sentence one, three, and then two. I mean, I, I might have reversed it. That's why I might, might have sung the song differently. Okay. Yeah. So, how did, how did, uh, you get around to, uh, to, to dealing with this, uh, actually? Actually, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just learned to be more resilient. Ah. Uh, I just learned to try harder. Yeah. I just learned to be more hardworking with whatever I was doing. Mm. Um, I just learned not to give up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This ties in uh, very nicely because um, talking about how resilient and uh, how hardworking you 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 had to become, right, to overcome this sort of issue that you had, this sort of a uh, uh, learning disability. Yeah. Because through throughout this hardworking and you know through all the hard work and resilience, you managed to score tremendously well for PSLE. And then you got into one of the top schools in uh, Singapore, Raffles Girls School. So, you know, not, not many of us uh, get a chance to study at such a, a top tier school in Singapore, right? So could you briefly, briefly describe like what the experience was like? Mm, I think it was like just any other school. Mm. Uh, the only difference to me at a point in time was, well, I came from a mixed school, a co-ed school, and then I entered into a school that, you know, Maybe there were only girls. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from that, um, I think the other takeaway, uh, from the environment was that I really learned what an elitist environment is like and mm. how to cope with it. Mm. Uh, it. It never occurred to me that way because I grew up as a void deck kid. Yeah. I played with my friends at the, at the void deck. You yeah. know, our grades didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, my mother didn't particularly celebrate when I scored like full marks for math or like when I failed. Yeah. I remember like feeling terrible. I mean, I remember like doing really badly for Chinese and yeah. my father, my parents never never thought of it in a bad way. Mm. My dad would just joke about it and, you know, tell me that, you know, he used to be a lot worse. Yeah, so, so, help so me they, feel a bit they weren't better. the kind to put pressure on your kids. Yeah, in so. fact, it was never an issue in my household. Um, mm. None of my siblings had that mm. as well. Um, yeah, so I think, I think, and, and, and it, we were ne- it was never a case whereby, you know, my dad drives a bigger car, my dad holds a bigger position at work, mm. we live in a bigger house. Mm. Um, I scored bigger, uh, better grades. Therefore, I am better than you. Mm. It, it wasn't. I was never in an environment like that. Mm. So when I first went to RGS, I, I was a bit shocked mm. um, by the environment, and I, I was also a bit shocked by how people would group and cluster themselves, um, for, would form cliques according to how they identify themselves as similar mm. in in that in that same tier. Mm. Yeah. So, I think that experience taught me how important it is 
mm. to feel confident because even though I did, I mean, I was always pretty a pretty confident child. Yeah. I mean, it didn't really matter to me that I saw that I had to work harder to to get what I wanted. Nobody ever told me I was stupid. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I I I worked fairly well. I I scored a grade that I scored for PSLE, but mm. nobody actually said it was like amazingly well. Nobody popped a champagne, <laughs> so I didn't look at it that way. Yeah. Um. But I when I went to that this school, I I started I started to realize that these categories matter. Mm. And 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 then it, it matters how you socialize. It matters who's going to be your friend. It mm. matters who you get to sit with in class. Mm. Uh, yeah. So learning to cope with it, I think, was the most valuable. Yeah. From the experience. Yeah, that is that, that's really a, a quite interesting perspective that you brought up. Because uh, I'm sure I'm sure these issues like all these with elitism has been uh, brought up many times by by concerned parents or even concerned people. You know, I think they constantly write to straight time saying how we should we should stop all these uh, elitism stuff and stuff like that. How we should foster a more inclusive society, right? But you know, in some respects, right? Don't don't you think that maybe in the in the broader scheme of things, you know, when you're growing up, you'll be put in, in these kind of environments where you'll be faced with like, oh, the, these people have nicer cars. They'll always be comparing how much you have, how much. How much yeah. value, how much value you bring and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, it's, you know, maybe, maybe it's a matter of, you know, uh, sort of educational experience, but maybe, but, but in a, in a different way, you could also say that sort of preparing you for, for life. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Um, it's prepping it for life, mm. but being able to cope with it, uh, and learning to cope with it, um, is critical. Yeah. 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 yeah because, um, I, 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 I really strongly and firmly believe that people with empathy and people who understand that everybody has a value mm. um, would succeed or rather be happier people. Mm. Yeah. Because I think the, the elitism or the elitist mentality strikes people off as yeah. people of higher value and yeah. people of lower value and how I treat them according to their value. Yeah. But I think everybody has a value. Yeah. And that's really the essence of why I started School of Concepts because mm. I'm not saying that everybody should be equal. Mm. But I believe that people should be given equal opportunities mm. so that they have a chance to explore what they are, what, what, what God has given them mm. as talent or mm. gifts. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's, that's very important and it should not, and that spirit should not be dampened by elitism. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting, you know. And in some respects, you know, elitism, the, 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 the way they look, look at the world, the way of, uh, view things, it's, it's kind of a shallow lens. You don't look, you don't look past, you know, how much, uh, how much net worth you have, or how many cars you have, or how much, how much money you have in the bank, that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you, if you take the effort to, to try and empathize, maybe see the position where they're coming from, see how, see the extra work that they put in, or see all the challenges they face, so they might provide a more sort of a complete view of, of individuals, uh, yeah, not just a uh, society. Yeah. So on, on this last point, I just want to ask, you know, Perhaps you you didn't go into to a school such as RGS and uh, uh, with, with such elitist standards. Do you think you would have turned out differently if you had gone to say like a, you know maybe like a neighborhood school or a different kind of school? I, I don't I don't really think so. No. As in I think as in I think it has contributed to my motivations as, mm. as, as an adult. Mm. But um, I don't think it would have changed very much of my value system or mm. how I am. Mm. Um, because I, I grew up in a family environment where my parents always remind us how important values are, how mm. important it is, character above every, anything else. Mm. So it's it's always something that sticks with me, it has stuck with me and still sticks with me. Mm. Um, and I mean, that has not changed. So I... I guess yeah. that would not have changed. I mean, I would not have changed either. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. 
so um, now that we've covered a bit about your background, uh, let's move on to your past life as a private tutor. Mm-hmm. So you had a new paper interview, right? And whereby you mentioned that you began tutoring while you were in JC. So why did you why did you decide to start teaching then? Um, I I started I started off teaching like piano lessons actually oh, uh, when okay. I was in secondary school because mm. um, I was like the church pianist and I would play the piano mm. in, in, in my apartment mm. and my neighbours would be would hear that and you know I think they they wanted me to help mm. um, or, or help help their children mm. pick up some skills on the keyboard yeah. so I, I, I pretty much enjoy it mm. um, or rather I, I must say I enjoy teaching mm. so then Mm, with my grades, there were requests to actually teach like academic subjects. Mm. Yeah, and then I did that, mm. and then my students did re- relatively well. So by the time I was in JC, it it was like a re- a sense of responsibility towards my students mm. um, that I that I did not think was necessary to push away or put away or shove aside just because I had my own commitments. Mm. Um, like I said, values are very important and yep. my parents really imparted the, the importance of responsibility. If you take something up, you don't just dump it away just because, you know, mm. just because of whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah um, it's, 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 it's really a responsib- responsibility towards yourself, towards mm. other people, towards the society and the environment around you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was very much like a, a responsibility actually during my JC years. I must say, yes, um, time management was trying. Mm. I had to wake up earlier than my friends. I would end my day a lot later, but I, I enjoyed it. And I think that that's, that, that was like more important than anything else. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, you know, although I mentioned earlier that, you know, you know, JC kids, they tend to be very busy, but they also spend a lot of time. I want to say spend but waste a lot of time yeah. you know, hanging out with friends or you know going drinking or experiencing all these yeah. sort of not so productive things so yeah. so in, in light of that yeah I would say that you your your experience is sort of a, a, at least you would provide like a, a lot more preparation for for, for growing up now. yeah yeah it's, especially with the, all, all, all the talk you mentioned about like holding responsibilities and stuff like that it's very very important skills and values to hold as, a, as you go into adulthood right yeah yeah so at this at this point when you were when you were starting out teaching like uh, piano lessons and then teaching all these uh, your neighbors and stuff mm. like that, right? Were you already getting paid or was it just also you're you're doing it for free like out of your out of your own time? Yeah, I mean I would I would get paid like in, in kind uh. so I get free meals, <laughs> I get a free packet of Milo, <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, um, I think I was getting paid in terms of satisfaction. I must say, mm. and uh, I learned a lot. Mm. Uh, I, when I was in JC, I learned that teaching other people helped me learn better and hmm. helped me re- revisit my foundation. Hmm. So when I was in JC, I remember teaching somebody a math, hmm. and like secondary school. Yeah, oh, okay. I mean, I was helping that person because I wasn't getting paid, right? <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it because I learned as much as that person. I learned to look at the concept or hmm. the formula from a different angle, hmm. and that really um, sparked quite a bit of thought process. Yeah, hmm. interesting. All right, so. Um, the next stage of your private tutoring career, uh, I would say, uh, would be when you launch your own uh, tuition business during university. Mm-hmm. So now I know many of my peers who do this as sort of a way to, to earn some extra income or to pay their course fees, right? But from what I've read from your interviews, you did this for other reasons. Is this correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what, were, <laughs> what, the other, what was the reason for, for doing this? Um. Of course, it started off with like, you know, um, the number of students increasing, you get, uh, you get paid better, you mm. have extra income. Yeah. That was, that was nice. Mm. 
Um, but then, you know, you would fall into that, that cycle of, so then you earn this amount, much amount of money, uh, this amount of money, and then yeah. you want to find happiness. Yeah. You know, and then you start to realize that your hours equate to dollars. Yeah. And then you try to reverse that yeah. subconsciously by yeah. going to retail therapy, vacation therapy, yeah. all sorts of self-fulfilling prophecy therapies that you can find uh, with the money that you earn. Mm. And then when I, and, and suddenly one day it struck me that I, I'm actually in a vicious cycle. And I, I do see a lot of people in that as well. Mm. Um, basically, I take the, say, for example, $1,000 that I earn mm. to go on a holiday yeah. just to make myself feel better. Yeah. So I work for 30 days. I go for a holiday for three days, feel like I'm top of the world and come back and slot for the next 30 days, hating my job for the next 30 days and mm. feeling happy for the next three days. Then actually, I'm better off not working at all. Mm. Because then I will be happy every day. I will not whine about my job and I will not need to go on a holiday to make myself, to mm. overcompensate myself feel better. Mm. So that was when I, 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 I decided to hold back a little mm. and and I'm a person who believes that you must enjoy what you do. Mm. So and place meaning on um place meaning in my business. Yeah. So um I had no idea what was a social enterprise. I mean I I mean I've no I I had no idea at the point in time what a social enterprise is. Yeah. Um I, I all I understood was that um I wanted to help. Mm. I mean, I saw a lot of children walk by my center. Yeah. Uh, it, I think what changed my life was that I opened a particular center at a low-income area. And yeah. I, I saw many children who were loitering outside. And yeah. they were as young as like four-year-olds. So they would always stand outside my school and look look into it longingly. And I would and I will, I will offer them. Mm. I, I will offer them a space. I will invite them in to play mm. with the educational toys that I had. Uh, let them do some coloring worksheets. So, and so like at that. this point, it was not just you. You had like a full team and everything. Yes, I had, I had. Mm. Yeah, but I was like, um, so I, I did all that, and and mm. and um, and then I I would. It struck me, you know, when I asked these children, you know, why why do you come here every day, mm. but you don't want to take lessons? Mm. And the answer, I mean, I think their answers really changed or really really shook me a bit. Mm. It, it reminded me of myself as a, as a child. Mm. I remember, I remember always asking my mother, you know, can you send me for tuition, please? Because it was the like coolest thing ever. <laughs> all my friends were going for tuition. It's so fun. They talk about tuition all the time. You know, it's like group work, you know, and things like that. But I never had that. I was, I was like at the park throwing stones or like cycling on my bicycle. <laughs> on my neighbor's bicycle, chasing a cat around the neighborhood, you know, things like that. So, I asked my mother, you know, can you just send me for tuition? Everybody goes for tuition. I had no idea what tuition was, actually. And then my mother would be like, why do you need tuition? The school's doing enough. If you're hardworking enough, you pay attention, you don't need tuition. Yeah. You just have to come home and do your homework. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I do my homework. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I do very badly in school. Then my mom yeah. said, yeah, that's right, so you don't need tuition. <laughs> So so then, so then it really, it really, it really hit me at a point in time because these children gave me Gave me answers like, you know, my parents cannot afford it. Mm. You know, I, I, um, my mother said I only have $5 to pay for this tuition. How mm. much is it here? Mm. And when I, and like, I, I remember a five year old girl asking me, how much is the tuition here? Mm. And I would tell her 240. A five year old girl asked you that. Yeah. And mm. I said 240. And she said, wow, that's a lot of money. That's uh, per month. Is it? Yeah. Okay. And at that point in time, it really hit me. Mm. At five years old, I, how would you know that 240 is a lot of money? What, how, how, how exposed are you, you know, yeah, to, yeah. to the dynamics of this world, to the dynamics of um, social economic uh, factors that will affect your life? Mm. So that's, that's when I started to realize and notice this. So then I started the, you know, I, um, me being me, I started the pay what you want mm-hmm. 
system. You know, mm. just come in, just come and pay what you want. I yeah. will still teach your children because they go to school and they feel lousy. They they yeah. just want to. At primary two, they tell me they want to stop school. Mm. So I, I I thought that was that was sad. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. So then I I said okay, pay whatever you want. But then it was not sustainable at all. Um, people take advantage of me. I remember, um, I remember staying in office with like a four year old girl till like one a.m. Mm. And then her mother would like walk by the center a little bit high on probably alcohol mm. and then she would pick her daughter up and go across the road oh. and because she lived there yeah. yeah and 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 these things really affected me quite a bit because i was spending all my time in that particular center yeah my business couldn't move up and yeah. because business can't move up i don't have that much to give yeah i was giving a lot of my time in exchange <clears throat> and a lot of myself in exchange yeah um, but would it does it really make sense yeah. and i'm not prepared already to take charity money yeah. because I then I would have to register as a charity and am I really a charity you know so these questions went through my mind at a point in time yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of oh wow it's kind of heartbreaking in a way when you when you when you when you, when you talked about your story like that because initially you started off with uh, you, you, you went on like a 10 minute uh, <laughs> 10 minute 10 minute story there and, it, and there's a lot lot to get into but I want to sort of recap there so so at, at uni, you started out, uh, started out with your tuition business, right? And then uh, you started earning some extra income. But then, you know, you, you're talking about how, you know, you went into this vicious cycle about you work so much, you earn a lot of income, and then you're looking for ways to sort of make you relieve yourself, make you hate your job a little bit less. You go into retail therapy and then, you know, you, you, from, from what I, what I understood is sort of you lost, you, you kind of lost meaning, a uh, lost sight of the, of, of what you were really doing this for. Of uh, or or you really didn't see the point of continuing this, which I think a a lot of uh, young people these days, uh, I think I think they will face this issue when they start to to promote higher. I I even have a friend you know who's doing who's doing tuition on the side as well, and she's like she's like constantly looking for ways you know she's like she's like thinking oh how can I because the tuition business uh, is scaling extremely well, she's earning a, a decent amount from uh, tuition as a side, even though she's only putting in like the weekends right, she's still earning more than her full time job through the tuition. But then, <clears throat> when I asked her, you know, what, what, what are you earning all this money from? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, I get that, I get the view of like, uh, you know, losing sight of all these meaning. But then, you know, when, when you start to do all this, uh, when, when you want, when you start to give back, when you start to find meaning, you know, you, 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 you see the poor little girl, five year old coming in, you know, the primary two, primary two kid coming in saying, I don't want to continue school anymore. And it's heartbreaking and you want to help them. And you help them, but then, it seems like the parents, they don't really want to help uh, their, with their own kids. Or they're just taking advantage of you. That seems, seems really horrible, you know. Why, you know, how surprising was it to you at that time that uh, the parents uh, treat, treated you that way? Um, disappointing, of course. Mm. I mean, I, I, disappointing not because they, they were not grateful, mm. or rather um, seemingly ungrateful. Um, disappointed because I, I didn't understand how parents were... I didn't understand how parents were, did not see how they are responsible for their children's well-being or their children's academic yeah. um, pursuits and things like that. I mean, my parents, I didn't grow up with a lot, yeah. but my my parents were always always felt that it was we were their responsibility. You know, we we are their responsibility even to this day. Um, they always felt that they were res- they are responsible for us. They're responsible how we behave, how we do, yeah. how we turn out. Yeah. So it was. It was very strange to me and it was very disappointing to see things like that. Mm. And even more disappointing to see that these children pick up this sort of irresponsible behavior, mm. feeling that 
you know, having disregard for a lot of things in their life. Yeah, and having very little respect. Yeah. Uh, and having a lot of um, and always lamenting about how difficult, you know, being very negative about things around them. Mm. And I, I, I felt, uh, yeah, and I felt, I mean, I, I felt very strongly about it. I still do feel very strongly about about not um, letting these children fall or spiral into this what I call a black hole. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think. I I I feel that when children are young, they have a chance. Yeah. You know, if you if you if you if you serve them with equal opportunities, they have a chance to explore and move further beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. But if if they're not given the opportunities, or these opportunities are clipped or taken away from them, yeah. Then they would only mimic, and they would only copy. Yeah. Or they would only be inf- get influenced by the, these not so desirable behaviors, yeah. and that's when. That's where, you know, the vicious cycle happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to sort of uh, minimize that sort of impact, you know, but, um, you know, clearly there's a lot of factors in play when, when, when determining the outcomes and lives of these individuals, right? And, you know, towards like how, how the cycle perpetuates and how, you know, maybe it may be broken. But from examples of like people like you, or examples of people like, like you know, others, like, you know, uh, other entrepreneurs who may not have such a, a a very privileged background or a very nice upbringing, you know, they've, they've able to overcome challenges and, and, you know, find success in their lives, right? I always, I always like to bring back a uh, story of Lee Ka-shing, you know, he, his, his, he was basically an orphan when he started out and he had to work, began working at like 14 years old, basically, because he just like slogged through his teens and then, and then started a business at like 18 or 20 years old and stuff like that. So there are stories of people, all these rag to riches stories show that there is a way to sort of break the cycle. But I'm not going to discount the fact that it's going to be difficult. But at the same time, you have to recognize that there is a certain sort of mindset and, and, and way to, to sort of get out of there. But maybe for, for them, for when you're in the cycle itself, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to, to, to get out of it or to, to, to see the sort of the positives in it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, and that's why we have... But you know, that's ideally. So that's like mm. the one in a million, or one in two million, or three million, or ten million. You know, that's why there's only one Lipashing. Mm. Yeah, but <laughs> um, but I think if these if these children are given equal opportunities, they have the f- they are served with the opportunity mm. to develop. Mm. And what we might be missing out on one such leader or one such successful person is. If that person's not given a chance. Yeah. So for all you know, behind all these racks to riches stories, behind all these success stories, they were once given a chance or they were once given many, um, opportunity, an opportunity or many opportunities. Mm. I mean, I, I myself speak for that. I mean, speak from experience. I mean, I didn't, I'm not saying that I you know I'm from rack to riches, but, um, in, in that sense, I, I had friends who were like me in the, you know, void deck children not doing very well in school, but I was given the opportunity to be exposed to some form of help. Yeah. And that changed the yeah. way I did, uh, the, that changed my academic progress. Yeah. It, it changed how I, I ended up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I would love to share that with other children. Yeah. 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 That's a very uh, noble aspiration to have. And I think, and, and, and I just want to dig a little deeper into this. It's sort of a, you, you brought this up about how you had like a, a good circle of friends, right? To help, to help push you and, and, and so on. And I believe, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were, you, you, you attended church regularly and you used to be part of a very, so I would say a, a positive community that's always looking to, to help you be the best version of yourself that you can be, right? So 
maybe for these for these children as well, an, an issue for them is that you know once they why is it so difficult for them to break out of this spiral is that they always end up in a sort of bad environment, hang out with a bad crowd, the people who don't want to who don't really want to help themselves be better, who who just see themselves you know as maybe life is too hard and I'm just want I just want to give up on stuff from the other hand. Mm. Yeah, so so yeah, it it it's difficult, but. Yeah, I, I I really admire your your aspirations in uh, wanting to help them uh, be better and, and help them to improve their lives. Yeah. So uh, lastly, on this point, right? Um, so you 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 did this for a while. You know this uh, sort of pay what you want model, and um, you know after a while, parents were taking advantage of you. They weren't being very responsible of their kids. You know. So what was the what was the breaking point that you realized that something had to change? When the cash flow didn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. I realized that all I could, all I could manage, was that group, and it can't. If it, it, I couldn't go beyond that. Mm. Uh, going beyond that would mean starving. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I realized that it something had to change. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So by this point, you have uh, dabbled in your own private tutoring business, and mm-hmm. through and, and you set up your own tuition center. So then, now we're going to talk about uh, launching school concepts, right? So then, after experiencing what you experienced with your tuition center, what led you to then move on and venture into a different form of uh, entrepreneurship? Let's say, yeah. So like every, like every experience in life, I always look upon it as a learning. Mm. Opportunity, mm. so I think that experience taught me quite a bit mm. um, to put whatever I learned um, into place, like mm. um, into play. Uh, I learned to manage. I learned to figure out a formula with a percentage that would make sense mm. um, to still do good work, to still help, but at the same time still be sustainable. Mm. Yeah, it's more of a figure out the balance. Though. Yeah, right. So. As I understand it, right, school concepts has a pretty specific differentiator. Yeah. Uh, in that it focuses on children's linguistic ability. Yeah. So, could you go a little bit more detail into this, and uh, why is it so important to develop at a young age? Okay, so I I think that um, literacy is the fundamental of um education mm. in that sense. If you can't read, you can't comprehend. Yeah. Basically, you can't do a lot of things. Yeah. Um, you c- you cannot differentiate right from wrong. Uh, you can't you can't explore further. You can't go beyond. Mm. So um, it's 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 something that it's it's something that's um, necessary. Mm. Um, at the same at at the same time, I also believe that um, literacy is a confidence booster. If you can speak well, if you can communicate effectively, you mm. actually would feel more confident about yourself. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, I spoke flu- uh, pretty fluent dialect. Mm. Uh, and I, but I couldn't, and I, and, and, uh, but my Chinese, my proficiency for Chinese and English weren't great. I think also because of the fact that, you know, I'm, I, I see things in a jumbled up manner, so sometimes information in my head gets jumbled up. Yeah. Um, 
I wasn't the most effective communicator and that really affected the way I communicated. I, I went to RGS and all my friends, or rather majority of them, were so well, so eloquent, you know, they spoke really well, yeah. they were confident, yeah. you know, they could do public speaking at 13 yeah. years old. <laughs> and then I was sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, like, I can't even speak to the class. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I would fumble when my friends ask me like intelligent questions. I couldn't think of an intelligent answer. And I would always look to other girls and go, wow, how did you even think of that? That was impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I really think that literacy is the fundamental of self-confidence. And I yeah. think what these children need is self-confidence before mm. they embark on anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they need to be, of course, equipped with the fundamentals before uh trying to be a math genius or, you know, really good at science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's uh I think it's really quite interesting that you brought that up because um I don't really see this this way, but now that now that when you think about it, right, talking about self confidence, talking about how, you know, these uh, girls in, 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 in your secondary school they're able to speak well, they're so eloquent and stuff like that. Yeah. It's sort of being lit being a very, very uh, highly literal or being very skilled in, in language sort of as uh, in a sense a, a social economic marker. In a sense, yeah, because you know, when you when you look at maybe all those uh, people from not well to do, they they don't have the very strong language skills that you would see from someone say from some from, from someone from like Raffles or yeah. Victoria or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting you brought that up, but of course at the other end, at the extreme end, it also contributes to like this this self confidence also uh, contributes to the elitism that you see there. Yeah, it makes them you know incredibly. Uh, confident makes them take everything for granted and then they go into this 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 mindset whereby oh I, my english very good i'm, I'm very i'm very good at kind yeah. Of thing. yeah <laughs> yeah i completely understand it yeah. <laughs> yeah so also um i want to i want to bring this up uh so back back when you were a tutor right you were teaching like maybe secondary school or, or jc level stuff right but then now you're going to, to preschool right so do you find that very different or, or do you find it like a very big adjustment to me? Yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, I think, I think as I was just telling one of my teachers yesterday, you mm. know, um, she asked me the same question, you know, mm. whether I think there's a difference. Yeah. And I say, of course, surely there is a difference. I mean, when you as a student, you were different when you were two, yeah. five, yeah. seven, primary school, um, even upper primary, yeah. secondary and JC. Yeah. So if the student is changing, yeah in the way they perceive things and their attitude in, in class yeah. and the behavior, shouldn't the teaching method change too? Mm. Yeah, yeah, because then the delivery method is different. Mm. Like if we teach a toddler, we, we likely, likely we'll have to move around quite a bit with the sing, the mm. dance. But you're not going to do that in the JC classroom setting. Mm. You know, your students are just going to think you're out of whack. Mm. Yeah. So, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very different. Yeah. yeah. So, so then... Uh, in terms of like say approaching the, the uh, approaching the, the students as or, or maybe say approaching your clients right because when, when you teach right it's not just about the students it's about students and the parents right yeah so do, do you see like a very big difference between like say the parent of like a secondary school kid versus the parent of like a preschool kid in terms of their expectations what they're looking for yeah of course thing? of course if you're asking me about expectations yes expectations are different and um, parents today, today's parents are changing a bit mm. um, you know parents in the past are very academically driven you know my child must get 100 mm. must get 100 must score full must be like the best mm. um, in terms of like results you don't but, think that's the case today <laughs> no like but today I do see some parents mm. um Realizing the importance of 
self-confidence, importance mm. of happiness, mm. um, happy learning. Mm. Because they, I, I guess people start to realize that if you're happy doing something, mm. you tend to do better at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many people my age are like that. Yeah. Uh, and and we are the parents. You know, most of us are parents at at our parents already, or. Uh, yeah. So basically, I think I think that's that's. I I do see a I do see a difference in terms of expectations that mm. way, mm. but in terms of um. Ability to meet these expectations, I think uh, the fundamental is empathy. So that really brings me back to empathy and yeah. inclusion. Yeah. If you don't understand people well enough, you don't take your time to listen and understand them, mm. you can never meet their expectations or help them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So which, which, which group is uh, more easier to empathize with? <laughs> I think it's all the same. I mean, an anxious parent who wants their child to score like perfect score yeah. for like math, for example, or science. Yeah. Some, I mean, they, ultimately, they just want their children to do well mm. in terms of career. Mm. Uh, they just want their children to be able to fend for themselves when they get older, you know, and, yeah. and take care of the family or maybe take care of them during their old age. Mm. Um, I think they all come, uh, they all come with good, good, good intentions and that the level of empathy the teacher must have mm. is necessary. Mm. And if the parent expects the child to be happy all the time, mm. then I think as teachers or people delivering the lesson, mm. I think, Enough empathy. I mean, there should be. We we should have empathy in that sense that we should try to understand why. Mm. You know, mm. is it it why 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 does why 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 does the parent seek happiness above academic success? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, as a, as a sort of uh, a side, uh, you you mentioned all this like talking about how being able to understand and empathize with your clients. You know what they want, so that you can meet their expectations better. So this is, I I would say this is a a, a sort of a key. Key fundamental aspect of of our of our capitalistic uh, economic system, in that as a as a business as a as a producer, right? You're able to to in order to succeed, you have to be able to see what your what your clients want, and then you have to be able to understand what they want, and then you can meet them, and then that's why they keep coming back, right? So let's say if you're like a restaurant, like a bar, if you understand who your target audience is, the target audience is you understand what they want. You know, maybe they like jazz or maybe they like blues music and then you play that and then you serve that. And that's what will, will keep them coming back to you, right? Yeah. So, so this, this uh, point of empathy is, uh, is, is pretty important and, and, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So, <clears throat> all right. So uh, I just want to touch on this now. So teaching can be a very uh, rewarding experience, mm-hmm. albeit also, um, as, uh, 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 some of my friends can attest, they're teachers as well. Uh, a frustrating one <laughs> at times. So, could you tell us uh, some of the more rewarding uh, experiences that you had with uh, school concepts? Okay, firstly, I must address the frustrating portion. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's frustrating, and I no. don't think my teachers think it's frustrating. No. Um, I think, I think, like I said, the level of empathy is very important. I mean, anything can be frustrating. Even yeah. teaching, like uh, uh, a colleague who yeah. might not be able to understand things the same way you understand it mm. or might not be as quick thinking as you are or might not be as forward thinking as you are can be frustrating mm. but if you have a good level of empathy um, and you do take it upon yourself to communicate effectively I don't think it's frustrating mm. okay so I think that's mindset uh, <laughs> one um, yeah the, the the second question sorry yeah so uh, what was what were some of the most uh, more rewarding, rewarding experiences, yeah. I think every lesson, I know as corny as this might sound, but every lesson, every session mm. uh, has its rewarding 
heart has a portion that's very rewarding. Yeah. Uh, whether it might be very, very small milestone, like, you know, or what people perceive as a small milestone, like yeah. being able to uh, grasp and understand a letter sound yeah. to, like, more challenging ones. Like, we recently had a camp mm-hmm. to teach children a, bli- a little bit more about resilience, mm. um, overcoming their fears mm. um, through a story to motivate them, inspire them through a rock climbing wall. Mm. And um, it was very... Um, encouraging and rewarding to see children who previously would not go anywhere near those walls to actually try to make it to the top. Mm. Yeah, and because the story revolved around saving somebody in need at mm. the top of the, the wall, mm. uh, it was nice and rewarding to see how these children had a very high level of empathy. Mm. Yeah, so I think, I, I mean, I think in terms of rewarding experiences, yeah. uh, there are plenty and they yeah. happen every day. I yeah. think it's really a matter of perception. Yeah. All right, so. Noticeably different this time around uh, from your previous tuition center is that rather than any sort of pay-what-you-want model as you had previously, School of Concepts offers heavily subsidized fees for low-income families. So can you describe how this uh, model works? How do you actually identify these uh, low-income families in the first place? It's not like they just tell you how much they make, right? Uh, using the using okay, so the so the government has these trust card system that's mm. like blue trust card, the orange trust card. It's the health assist card. Oh, um, okay. It's uh, it's to identify people, you know, of different income levels so that they are eligible for subsidies, especially healthcare subsidies, mm. which I think is great. I think, and, 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 you know, education, I mean, in, in this sphere, we don't really have something like that, but mm. I think that health assist card is quite an indicator. Of course, sure, I've heard stories about how people go through that, you know, have loopholes, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think it's worth. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt? Not quite that, yeah, I mean, that probably, yeah. if you put it in that perspective, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not quite worth the effort to, to scrutinize and try to sniff or suss these people out, mm. um, amongst those that really need help. So, yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. Also, going back to, like, sort of, the, the empathy that, that you brought up with Sola. Yeah, I mean, if they yeah. have to do all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if they can get past themselves driving like a Maserati to send their children to class by paying $50 a month, I think that's okay. I, I still, I still perceive them as, I still perceive that they are experiencing a form of poverty, but a different form of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there must be some form of poverty in your life if you're driving a flashy car, sending your child for a subsidized rate lessons. Yeah. And, you know, and compromising on the opportunity that somebody else can. But, but in the instance, you wouldn't call them up. No, I wouldn't call them out. I mean, I think, I think it's really, they really have to identify that. Um, and the, ch- the child should not pay the price. Yeah. Sounds like you really want to believe that them sending their kids here and them taking on this sort of uh, program that you have is, uh, you, you really think, you really want to think that they, they're doing it in their best interest, right? In, in their, their best, best faith and stuff like that. They really want to help their kids. That's why they're doing this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if if you look at it from their perspective, they'll probably tell you that, hey, it's a lot of effort, okay, to send my kid for a lesson every week, you know, to drive my car here, you know, send my child up <laughs> and wait for an hour. You know, it, it I mean, perspectives are, are plenty, you know, in that sense. Mm. I won't call them excuses, but yeah. that's perspective, uh, perspectives are plenty. And if, if we have to address every one of them, I would rather look and address at those with a positive outcome. Mm. Yeah. That's true. Alright, so, uh, with your previous model, you face certain challenges, right? Do you, do you face different challenges this time around or similar ones? I think awareness. Mm, awareness of? That's why I'm accepting interviews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awareness, awareness in that sense, Reaching out to the lower income group is a lot more effort. Really? Than reaching out to the, the mainstream customers. Really? 
Yeah. Okay. Because they are skeptical, number one. Mm. They may not be very consistent because they have other masters to serve in their lives. Mm. They may not prioritize things the same way. Mm. Um, especially, you know, their child's education is like the bottom, the bottom, or maybe somewhere in the bottom, you know. Yeah. Um, I think, I think being able to survive is on top. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and of course, amongst other things. So yeah. I think reaching out to this group and, um, Encouraging them to develop a certain level of consistency mm. um, is the most trying. And in terms, in terms of, of uh, making their kids' education a priority. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Taking the effort to send them here, paying the, paying the monthly fees and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. The, the good thing about this is that I, I guess the curriculum is made in such a way whereby, apart from just equipping a child with literacy, uh, it also builds a sense of self-confidence and a self-directed way of learning. Mm. So the child actually requests to learn. The child actually wants to learn. The child's actually motivated to learn. Mm. So we look at the day when the child no longer is no longer able to come. Mm. I mean, due to whatever reasons, you mm. know. Look at um, this as a sort of success. At least, yeah, at least the child still wants to learn elsewhere mm. and they will look at things around them and draw relevance to a learning opportunity everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're hoping that uh, through through your school that they're able to to break out that sort of cycle that we talked about earlier. Huh? I yeah. think through the through the curriculum, we are hoping that they they will be able to make informed choices. Not so much all of the cycle. I mean, they choose to be like well, the parents. Is still that, a like, choice? Six, seven years old is a bit. <laughs> uh, no, I mean really having the right attitude towards <clears throat> it, and then you know mm. developing later on in life, mm. and then then they will be able to make informed decisions because looking back, they will they will likely be able to identify that hey, they were given an opportunity, and I think that eager learning attitude, that eager learning attitude or behavior will follow them for quite a while. Mm. Yeah. Do you think this would apply to the parents as well as the children? It has. It has proven to have um, an impact on parents. Mm. Um, in um, you know, in Chinese, we always say you know every parent loves their ch- every every parent or every mother or every father yeah. uh, loves their children. So or loves their child. So um, it's it's just somewhere in them. You know, when it's not a priority, so they 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 lose sight of. Um, so I've seen a lot of children who come in uh, and uh, not doing very well in school. But then also because of that, they develop negative behaviors mm. and they make it very challenging for their parents yeah. uh, to manage what's at home. Yeah. So we noticed after, after working with these children and helping them ad- ad- adopt like positive learning attitudes yeah. and positive behaviors, uh, they actually make, they actually inspire their parents mm. in turn to do better for themselves. Mm. So we have seen quite a large number of them actually mm. do better for themselves after the experience, mm. um, after their children do better and I think that's the same that I mean I think the same goes for working mothers yeah. I mean if you have if you have friends who are working mothers you will realize that if they have children who do not fall sick you know go to school do well they will likely be able to perform better at work because that's just one better one there yeah you know? yeah let's let's worry for them right? yeah. yeah so so they won't have to shuttle back and forth all the time mm-hmm. yeah, and they feel disappointed with themselves because they cannot achieve anything so called yeah 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 it's interesting. All right, so um, out of uh, curiosity, right? Um, so, so I'm just I just want to know this. Since your business model is transparent to the public, uh, in terms of like heavily subsidized for like low income families, so do do wealthier parents ever ask why they are paying more than than others? You know, or how do you handle handle these situations? No, never. No, I'm very grateful that no. Um, mm. In fact, wealthier parents see value in it. 
Mm. I have quite a couple of pa- I mean, I've, I I do know, and I um, I'm acquainted with quite a couple of parents, uh, and some of them are my friends yeah. who send their children here because they think it's really important that their children develop a high level of empathy. They mm. learn, they learn to be inclusive. Mm. I think, I think that's really nice. Yeah, yeah, that's such a yeah. That's actually quite an interesting uh, perspective that you brought up, uh, because in in some sense you are. The, you, you're not just providing a school, you're providing a sort of environment whereby you're able to mix with people of different backgrounds. You know, maybe yeah. some of them are poorer, some of them are richer, stuff like that. I'm not sure if you noticed, but all my funders staff yeah. are people with disabilities. It's just that oh, really? we don't hang in like a flag and we don't get them to wear badges that says I'm a disabled <laughs> person. Yeah, but you would, you would never know if you don't ask them. Mm. I've, I mean, I've, of course, but I've had negative experience. I've had, um, a friend of one of my staff, yeah. uh, popping by the shop. She's got children. Yeah. And, uh, she was just, you know, inquiring friend, inquiring about, you know, the lessons. Yeah. And, um, a staff of mine who's blind or partially blind. Yeah. Um, maybe I should say partially blind. She's visually impaired. Um, she she couldn't see, so she actually barged in and interrupted because she was eager to serve. Mm. She did not see that the other receptionist was already tending to that person. Mm. So she appeared to be a little rude. Mm. Um and she's she's actually uh, she actually has albino. Ooh. So um she she was just trying to be very friendly yeah. and she was just trying to be very helpful. Yeah. But that person on the receiving end actually snapped and passed the comment a very nasty comment actually in my perspective but oh, she wow. she passed the comment very proudly mm. uh, like a form of advice to our business saying that you know you should not put such an you should not put an albino blind person in the front it destroys your company's image I mean surely we have seen lots of cases like that you know but I think I'm grateful that my team yeah. stands on this yeah. very firmly yeah, yeah and I, I'm, I'm very glad that um, we take this opportunity yeah. to share with these people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you know, that, that, that surely yeah. empathy is more valuable yeah. than that stack of dollar bills they have yeah, made yeah. of paper in their yeah. wallet. Yeah. yeah. To me, right, and, and I don't want to you know, bash on your friend or whatever, but you know, sometimes when customers make these sort of comments and, and you know, they, they think that, oh, they know better than the business, they think that, oh, oh I deserve better. It comes off as a little bit entitled. What do you think? Yeah, she is a businesswoman. She owns quite a, she, she owns a business that has a reputation in mm. Singapore in a specific industry. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it was appalling to me actually. Yeah. Um, and it did shake, um, the team member who's a friend of hers quite a bit. Mm. Mm. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's important that we all stand our ground. Yeah. yeah. That this society requires yeah. inclusiveness very much, inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because, um, yeah, I find it actually absolutely amazing that you that you specifically go out and hire people with disabilities or people who are less privileged to to work for to work for you guys. Because I worked with uh, sorry, I interviewed a a previous social entrepreneur, Deborah Lam of Society Staples. So she also hires uh, all these uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, people with disabilities for their staff uh, to teach to to sort of lead some of their their causes, right? Some some of their workshops and. What I, what, what I got from that is that, you know, these people with disabilities, their experiences, they are very, they, they sort of, uh, have this view that people see them very differently. They tend to look down or patronize them. So when you give them the opportunity to go out and, and take responsibility, go out and, and do something, you know, go out and, uh, uh, perform some tasks, you know, it, it helps them, it helps to empower them, which is something I think so, social enterprises specifically, uh, are, are, are more sort of, uh, geared towards towards helping 
Yeah, which is why I find I find that incredibly uh, amazing that you that you do this sort of thing. Yeah. I, I won't consider it helping, but I would consider I would consider giving people opportunities. Yeah. If as a school we don't believe in giving opportunities to people whom we perceive has like a superficial physical disability, yeah. then we don't then then it's very reflective of how we treat our students. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's that's the essence of it. And how we treat the parents. Mm. You know, I I'm I'm sure that particular person who commented on that uh, who commented that way mm. uh, would feel very, very disgusted mm. if we were to treat somebody who's wealthier than her somebody else's children who's wealthier than her in a different way. Mm. I'm sure she would feel that form of disgust because she feels discriminated. Yeah. But, and she, on, on the other hand, is discriminating somebody else. Yeah. So I think it's very reflective of our behaviours at the end of the day. It's not so much of help. I mean, I wouldn't perceive it as helping, but mm. I would perceive it as, I would perceive it as um, giving people opportunities to maximise their potential because every mm. one of us deserve an opportunity to maximise our potential. Every one of us has yeah. a talent. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if we're not given... Um, room yeah. to explore that that's very sad yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and i just want to distinguish that and and I, th- I think you brought up a very clear uh, a very good distinction between helping and making them sort of uh and, and sort of empowering them or giving them a platform to take on responsibility right is that you know al- al- although although it might seem that these people with disability they, they need all help in the world from their from their perspective you know or, or maybe you can you can you can try to think about it from from their sort of view lah is that, you know, you wouldn't want to be living a life where you're just depending on others to, to, to live. It wouldn't be a very, in, in a weird way, I don't think you'd be very dignified if you, if, if you lived that sort of life or, or if you wanted, or, or, or even if, if it wasn't put on, uh, it wasn't your choice to lead that sort of life. I don't think you would be happy at the end of the day if, if people had to spoon feed you or, or keep providing for you. Yeah. And, and which is that, which is why you see like people, people, disabled people who are able to go out and lead their own lives. They, they look so dignified, look so proud and happy. Especially, you know, when you look at Paralympians, oh my yeah. God, the the the, sm- the 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 widest smiles you can see when they're up on a podium, because yeah. they, they show that oh, you know, even if though even if I don't have legs or whatever, I can still do these sort of things. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I always I'm a strong believer that disabilities <laughs> is beyond just physical. Mm. You know, I I really genuinely think that disability can come in many 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 different forms. Mm. In fact, I think. Disability in in terms of mentality mm. is the real issue. Mm. Is the real disadvantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you're not you're not meaning like a mental illness here, la, but no. it's a, sort of a different kind of crutch. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Elitism is on its own. Elitism is on its own is a disability. I in my perspective, sorry, <laughs> I have to say very strongly. Uh, yeah, yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So, um, as we near the uh, end of the interview, right? So, I want to get your views on sort of a more broader social entrepreneurship industry, right? So, you've done work both as a socialpreneur and, you know, uh, in your previous uh, private tuition center, somewhat of a charity. So, how would you compare the two models in terms of effective- effectiveness or viability? I think a social enterprise, I can't really speak for a charity because I've never really run a charity organization per se, but mm. um, more like, I think a social enterprise, it's very viable mm. uh, because at the end of the day, we're not taking 
uh, we don't believe in taking donations in that sense to pay for the students. Yeah. Um, uh, we believe in doing our part. Yeah. And some and 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 letting other people take responsibility and do their part. Mm. Um, at the same time, being competitive mm. in the industry. Mm. Yeah. Still looking at improvement, looking to better ourselves. You know. I think that's and and continually feeling the need to give value mm. to the business, to the brand, and to the to the to the to the environment. I think that's that's yeah yeah that makes um a social enterprise yeah because because at the end of the day as a as a business at the end of the day social enterprises are still businesses yeah. they still have to compete they still have to find value for their clients. Do you think like maybe a charity doesn't face this sort of uh, same same issues? Like in terms of competing or, or finding value or something like that? I think, um, I, like I said, I can't really speak for a charity because I have not, I've not mm. gone into that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of a social enterprise, I feel that, or rather this social enterprise yeah. in this sector, in this industry, yeah. um, I feel that it, is, it, it, makes it, it makes the business viable because being able to compete um, pushes us Beyond certain limits, yeah, yeah brings us out of the comfort zone sometimes. Yeah. You know, encourages us and motivates us to move forward yeah. to serve the community better as well as um, value add the brand. Mm. Yeah, so I think that form of uh, motivation is necessary to any form of business, whether is it a social enterprise or mm. a, or a for profit organ. I mean, or an organization that's profit driven. Yeah. Yeah. So and and of course, when we think about like effectiveness, right? Your goal at School of Concepts is to help, uh, to help these uh, underprivileged children, help them academically build up their self confidence uh, through through uh, linguistics, through to developing a linguistic ability. So of course, if you are able to be a better business at doing that, so and you end up helping them more, be more effective at helping them. So. Yeah, I think I think it's more of giving every child an opportunity. So mm-hmm. regardless whether they are labeled underprivileged because of the income level or whether they are they come from privileged families based on their income level again, I mm-hmm. think it's just giving every child the opportunity to be self directed and self motivated in their learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Alright, so um also, right, uh, Mr. Elfie Offman, who is the chief executive of RAISE, which is the Singapore Centre for Social Enterprise. So he made this comment, right, that I found quite interesting. So he said, quote, profit is not a dirty word. By maximizing your revenue, then you'll be able to channel them to the group that you really want to help. So, end quote. So I think like, we got a little bit of your take on this uh, earlier, right? So then I just want to ask you, so most Singaporeans... Uh, as I'm aware of, I think they would see profit making as sort of some offshoot of greed and selfishness. So, do you think by by sort of going through a social entrepreneurship or developing social entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurship in Singapore, they help them to change this mindset? I, I think honestly, yeah. If I were to go into debt, it's never going to end because it's gonna <laughs> it's a spiral. Oh, it, it, it's it's a never ending question, you know. Mm. But um, it's a never ending argument. I mean, but um. Very frankly, it's the same mentality if you perceive it as if you are the person receiving, mm. if you if you are tasked to do something mm. and you are the one getting paid, you would feel that you should be given value for mm. your work. Yeah. So likewise, the same mentality should happen when you are paying somebody else yeah. for a service rendered. So I think the gap is in this form of is in this mentality or this balanced mentality in in in, in the in the local environment, not so much of whether it's a social enterprise or an enterprise per se, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so do you think? But, but, but do you think that uh, people will ever see profit as like uh, in a in a sort of more more better light? Or do you think I that's th- just one one step too far? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think profit can be can be in many forms. Um, like I just I just attended a conference pre- recently, and you know I met with this amazing lady from yeah. Australia who wants to end slavery. Yeah. And you know she put things in perspective. If you buy cheap clothes, you are just promoting slavery because. The, the cheap labor that goes behind um, producing these cheap clothes yeah. um, has an element of slavery in it. Yeah. So how many people actually think about that? You know. Yeah, but then yeah. but then going back to what you said, you know, the gap between the sort of disconnect, right? Is that how many people would? So if you wanted to 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 to, to not pay cheap clothes, you have to pay like an extremely high premium so that you can have better paid workers and conditions, right? I think the balance is understanding value. Mm. You know, I think that same thing, it brings me back to empathy and responsibility. Mm. You know, having the empathy that if I'm being paid to sew a dress, how much do I want to get paid? Hmm. Shouldn't that equation be how much I want to pay for a dress of a quality that I think I'm capable of or even better? Mm -hmm. Same thing. Hmm. You know, if I were to teach somebody else's child and put my heart and soul into it, How much do I want to get paid to do that? It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. A lot of people will say. So how much will you pay somebody else to do that? Hmm. You know, I think that's the question. It's not really very much of a social enterprise or an enterprise, per se. I think it's very much of the value that they perceive. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I call it the elephant syndrome in my my own terms. Because, you know, it's the mouse and elephant syndrome. In, in a way, it's sort of like you want to match the values between as a consumer and as a seller, right? Yeah. You want to you want the the, the buyer to be able to be able to see oh how much is the the seller putting in the effort into yeah. what they're selling, yeah. and then you want to see oh you know how much do I value this? Yeah. Maybe from from how much in terms of like how much work that they put in, how much how much it means to me. Yeah. Yeah. So so you think the real challenge in that making balancing the equation? Yeah. Yeah. That's why even with my tiered pricing, I put it, I put it very clearly mm. to a per- person who's earning a thousand two hundred dollars a month. Mm. Fifty dollars a month is a lot of money. Yeah. For a person earning twenty thousand, having a, tw- a household income twenty thirty thousand a month, yeah. fifty dollars is nothing. Yeah. You know, or almost nothing. Fifty dollars is like lunch. Yeah, it's like lunch, <laughs> likely. Yeah. You know. So then, do we have to put ourselves in a situation where we want to cut somebody so thin, mm. or slice somebody so thin? How would this difference make us better off? Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think I think everything is cyclical. Everything moves in a circle. If mm. you're gonna slice people that thin, it's gonna come back anyway. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's it's really not very much of like a social enterprise or an enterprise. I mean, a social enterprise can charge an arm and a leg and, and a leg, you know, yeah. for something that's done by somebody because uh, they lab- they labor with a lot of effort and, yeah. and things like that. But somebody else may not perceive it. At that kind of value, yeah, because they feel that it should not be priced at that that amount. Mm. That's fair. I think that's fair. Mm. You know, if we reverse it, a social enterprise charges like almost nothing for their service, mm. and people think it's like super worthwhile. I think it's. I think it's. It's really a chicken and egg thing. Like I said, it's a never ending argument. So I think the 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 issue really lies with the person a person's perspective on value, yeah, and how they reflect on both sides of the equation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's a very, very interesting perspective you brought up. And you call this the elephant in the room. Elephant and... No, it's, it's called, I call it the elephant and mouse syndrome. Elephant so, and mouse. Yeah, yeah. so the, the mouse thinks that he's bigger than the elephant, you know, in that sense. <laughs> he doesn't realize the reality of the situation. Yeah, and the yeah. elephant thinks that 
he, you know, Elephant's afraid of mouse, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's something wrong with this equation right here. <laughs> yeah, you know, both of them, both of them are not looking at this equation on both the, on both, on, on, the, on both perspectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So then, um, lastly, right, before we end, what are some of the key lessons that you have learned throughout your journey? And then, you know, what are the lessons you would like to impart to, to prospective social entrepreneurs out there? I think being constant in, um, believing in the good, and doing the best that you can mm. or being the best that you can be mm-hmm. is important and maintaining that desire to continue mm. and trudge on every day because every morning it, it you can wake up to an amazing day yeah. you can wake up to a not so you know great day yeah. but I think every experience is a learning opportunity to be a better form of yourself so you'll be more tomorrow. optimistic yeah if you, if you put it that way, yes. To be more appreciative of what's around. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, um, how would you suggest that uh, businesses or prospective entrepreneurs out there address the elephant and mouse, if you put it? I think they just have to reflect it with their own actions. Mm. I think people really look at actions. People really look at behavior. If I'm telling you this and I'm going, I'm going to walk out there and I'm going to cut some bargain something for $15 to $5 mm. just because, just because blank, mm. then it's not reflect what I'm sharing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. So thank you very much for your time, Mint. Uh, this has been a very eye-opening <laughs> interview. I certainly learned a lot and, uh, I think that people will get a deeper understanding of who you are as a person and your motivations as well. I wish you all the best uh, for you and Score Concepts and I wish you all the success as well. So if people in the audience would like to get in touch with you and your business, so where might be where, where might they do so? Send me an email. Yeah. Yeah, means at schoolofconcepts.sg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for any business inquiries. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. You're yeah. Welcome. And I look forward to meeting people who... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.